Welcome to BAFTA's Heritage Podcast, featuring monthly conversations on films, TV programs and games recognized by the Academy since 1947. Find out more about how BAFTA has been celebrating and inspiring creative excellence at BAFTA.org forward slash heritage. Will you welcome Glenda Jackson? I feel like I should be on my knees for this one, but I shall, on I, shall, I shall sit upright. So okay. watching that for the, for the first time in many years, yes. what came back to you as you saw it? To be entirely honest, the thing that struck me most was we had this kind of pantheon of great British actors. And, and um, regrettably, so many of them are now dead because the years have passed by. But I know, I mean, it actually gripped me, which is quite unusual for something which I'm sure lots of people will say, see yourself, and you think, oh, why'd you do that? Or why didn't you do the other? But no, it was quite gripping. Why did you do it? Because you, you Are you crazy? Anything, Who would you? turn well, that yes, down? Yeah. Come on. So you, didn't have to, you, you only had to be asked uh, once. Once, yeah. 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 No, I mean, I have thought about this before, but it would be absolutely impossible to do a series like that today I think in this country, possibly anywhere in the world, unless you had a vast, vast budget. I mean, you know, that's nine hours of, of film, really, um, over six episodes. To do it with the same group of people all the way through. I mean, it, you know, it, it, the real interest was to go from her accession when she was, what, 25 until she died without it being some kind of, oh, look, Ma, she can act old. Mm. You know what I mean? And you had the same group of actors all the way through, and very often we had the same technicians. We invariably had trouble getting into the BBC in White City to record because the man on the gate would never let you park your car and all that kind of thing. <laughs> but, you know, it was all done in-house. And why Liz Waller isn't up here, I don't know, because she was responsible for the costumes. Can't you come up and sit up here? <laughs> It would be, be certainly very nice to get a microphone to Elizabeth when, yes, the, when the moment, because we've got some pictures of, uh, of, of her work to look at Great. in a moment. I suppose um, Elizabeth, R., Elizabeth R. is a kind of sequel, isn't it, um, to The Six Wives of, of Henry VIII. We've got some of the same actors carrying Indeed. over from one series yes, yes. to another, haven't we? Yes. Bernard Hepton playing Cranmer Absolutely. in both. Yes. And yes. that was a great success. So, so Elizabeth R. was in a way, the second strophe of all of that, wasn't it? I presume so. I mean, I don't know how that came about, who in these days, those days, ever knew how the BBC came to any decision. Um, but, I mean, it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity, yeah. How involved were you in the preparation of the scripts or um, um, what, uh, what decisions were being made about what, what parts of her life to, to dramatise? Not at all, really, no. I mean, the scripts came and we were very fortunate because so much of what she actually said and wrote is still in existence in the National Archives, so you could actually refer back to her. And a vast bibliography, really, of people of her time. Um, I've always believed that uh, you have to make the script work. Everything you need has to be in the script. But of course, as soon as it was announced, um, dear friends sent me copies of her life and one thing and another. And there were two books which I found very useful. The one was by Elizabeth Howard, I think, Elizabeth I, and the other was Edith Sitwell's The Queens and the Hive. But to talk about in, you know, 
putting anything into the script. The last episode script came had her dying, cradling the scepter. And I thought that was slightly over the top. And fortunately, I had read um, a contemporary description of what life was like for her ladies-in-waiting when she was actually dying, written by one of her ladies-in-waiting. And she wouldn't go to bed, and she sometimes wouldn't even sit down, and she would, the ladies-in-waiting would faint before she actually took the weight off her feet. But the thing that was so wonderful, I thought, was that when she was dying, and they actually got her into a chair, even though they hadn't got her into bed, she was sucking her thumb. And that, I thought, we don't need a scepter if you've got a woman sucking her thumb. That says it all. <laughs> so how did you find your, do you remember how you found your opinions about her? Changing. What impression had you? You know, how how? What impression did you have of this woman from your from your school education? What did you know about her before you were her? I think one knew the broad outlines and you know the big things: her mother having her head chopped off and her own dangers and the armada and you know making the country peaceful again and great phrases like "I don't have a window into men's souls" and all that. I think what was the one thing that came out of it was just how absolutely appalling she must have been to live with and around towards the end of her life. Absolutely awful. And that was a terrible, uh, what am I trying to say here? It was in, in a kind of way her conscience punishing her in that sense. I, I mean, for the people around her, she must have been an absolute nightmare to try and deal with, but she must have been an absolute nightmare for herself because she wasn't stupid and she knew what she'd done and she knew why she'd done it. And so, yes, that was something that I found quite revelatory. Right at the beginning of the story here, of course, we see more of that, a slightly more carefree side to her, don't we? I mean, that, that joyous moment when she throws her hat up in the air when she yeah. realises mm. that uh, you know, she's got the job, as it were. Well, she's got her life, which is slightly different. I mean, slightly more than having a job. I don't think she was ever carefree. I don't think she was ever, um, what's the word I'm saying? I don't think anybody, even those who claim to be most intimate with her, could ever honestly say they knew what she was like, because there was so much more to her than she would ever show, except in very rare, the currency. And I suppose a lot of the imagery of her, a lot of the accounts of her, they're, they're kind of highly ideological, aren't they? They're an image that, that, that's projected for political reasons. Oh, very much they? so. But I mean, she knew how to sell herself. I mean, she knew exactly how to engage with the people. They were the people, the people kept her safe only by the people liking her. I mean, you know, the stories about when she was dying, the way her wardrobe was absolutely savaged. I mean, where people were taking stuff by the, the kind of bucket cartload away. So that kind of loyalty of time and the position of being a monarch, certainly around, certainly in the court, was completely gone because it was the next guy, you know, that was the one you had to please. But I think for the people she did have, and part of that was the wonderful way she sold herself. Um, and equally, when she didn't want people to see her because she didn't think she was up to it, then she was not seen. So there was that kind of patina of this mysterious, yet all-powerful, marvellous woman that nobody really, other than the court, saw. We've got some slides of, of uh, some of the, the costumes and you preparing for this part, oh, preparing right. uh, um, in the makeup chair. And there we are. Aha, uh -huh, there we are. Now, 
One of the, the wonderful things about, about uh, Elizabeth's work on this is the way that, that um, the, the costumes have been you know, recreated from these... Oh, I mean, why she isn't up here uh, telling us about how it was, it was absolutely astonishing work. And, I mean, that one, you know, that's a... But, I mean, they, the, end, the end of the series... Nobody knew how to make the kind of ruffs that they wore then, A, because there wasn't the equivalent materials and things. But they went and looked at the extant portraits of the period in the galleries over several weekends and tried to work out from how the artist had used the light and the shade so that they could come back and make the ruffs. I mean, that needs a round of yes, applause it in itself, it doesn't it? My God. Can, My we get, God. can we get a microphone to... Uh... Elizabeth, and maybe... Just before everybody gets hysterical about her, however, you know that wonderful white dress that you see me wearing with the ailment and things. After rehearsals at the Acton Hilton, I would have to go to White City for costume fittings. And on this particular day, I was being fitted in that dress. And I'm not good at standing still. I have very poor circulation. So in between times, I fainted. And as I hit the floor, I heard a voice saying, I'd scratched my hand on a pin as I was falling down. A voice, I'm not pointing any fingers, said, don't let the blood get on the dress. <laughs> Where are you? I'm a bit blinded up here. Where She's are you? She's there. There, hello. Waving yes. her hand. So when you see these pictures come up, on the screen, what uh, you know, what what are you reminded of? How hard, how much hard work was that to, to oh, make these extraordinary things? It was very hard, um, but I had a marvelous team and a marvelous actress to work with. It was just a terrific team. Mm -hmm. It was just a terrific teamwork, and we had a lot of fun. Um, we worked long hours. We did lots of research. That was fun too. We went to museums. Mm -hmm. um, it was it was just fun. We had a good time of it. And Glenda was marvellous. Mm. <laughs> well, it always helps when you're well-dressed. <laughs> Let's see, because we've got... This, this slide we're looking at here is the phoenix, the oh, portrait. The famous one. Yes. yes. Um, we've also got... Uh, we can also have a look at the Ditchley uh, portrait there. Now, extraordinary that, mm. isn't it? Mm. <laughs> But it is, and also to go back to the point I made earlier, I mean, they were amazing with what they did because the extant, well, the, the period materials no longer existed. And so how they managed to get them to look like that. Because at this period, if I'm right, what kept that skirt out like that was a wagon wheel made of wood. And for the big court functions of that period, it could take a lady of the court more than seven hours just to get ready to, you know, stand around the walls. So what they did, Liz and her team, was well, just fantastic. The jewels on that dress, we, were, we had a great problem because there were a great number of jewels and we couldn't find anything that was there in the shop. So Caroline, my assistant, and I spent a whole weekend making the jewels out of... Um, glass stones and uh, cake, gold cake decoration, which we cut up to make the sort of settings for the jewels. Mm -hmm. And um, it took us quite a long time to make them, didn't it, Caroline? And um, all the jewellery was made by an amazing friend of mine. Um, and it was all made out of cardboard, and he cut the cardboard up into shapes, and he set it with jewels, and he used bits of gold wire and things. 
and some of them are amazing copies of the actual original original jewellery. Mm. Um, and they, we had a whole load of um, portraits painted, which you can actually well you could you can't see them, but they're on that rough at the side. And they were like little uh, Nich Nicholas Hilliard portraits. Uh, a lot of time and effort went into things that we just had time to, well, we didn't have time to do it. We did it mm. in the time. Um, but I don't see how you can do that now, not with the Wouldn't team happen. that we had, because mm. we had so few people. Mm. Was, it, was it well resourced, Elizabeth? Did you have, uh, did you have what you needed? Um, or did you have to well, be Well, I can't remember how much we had now. We didn't have a lot. Mm. But again, um, we managed. Mm -hmm. we, we bought a lot of fabric very cheaply and treated it. We bought a lot of fabric and had it re-embroidered. Uh, some of the people that worked for us did it for love rather than mm. uh, money. Mm. Um, we had a marvellous woman called Phyllis Thorold who did all the embroidery yeah. on that gold dress. Fantastic. And um, she, she was just um, a person who liked doing embroidery. Mm. Uh, and she did it. Mm. Uh, it was super. Uh, you met so many lovely people, I yeah. have to tell you. We've also got an image of the Darnley portrait, which is the one that hangs in the National... Ah, now, yes, look, here's yeah, a nice, good close-up. That shows um, you up there Decorated. Now. That's us. Yeah, that's them <laughs> and, on their hands uh, and knees. And that's a close-up of the, uh, the ditch. The you can see, see the, um, the jewels that we made yeah. out of um, just paper and yeah. jewels yeah. and things. Now, let's see the next slide, because the next slide oh. is of Arno. That's the Darnley. Yes, that's the Darnley one. But the, fi the final picture that we have, if we could move on to that uh, now. <laughs> An actor prepares, Glenda. Tell us about, about that physical transformation. About well, I just sat work. there. I just sat there and they, they did it. And certainly the old ones, this was in the days where, well, that old face is seven layers of... Um, false eyelash glue. So you had to, they painted it on and I had to wait and it dried and then they painted, it took about seven layers to get it done. And then they had to make up on top of that. And this was the last episode, I think, pretty much. And uh, they did let me get up occasionally because my bottom just went to sleep, sat in that chair, you know, everything stopped running. But I just sat there and let them do it. I mean, it wasn't, I didn't uh, apply anything. And they were just marvelous. And again, the same group of people trotted in at ungodly hours, you know, Sunday morning to, to make me up. It was just an incredible experience. Were you able to rehearse with the costume and any of the, the makeup element? Because I imagine- No, you, no, I mean, only on the shooting days, which, um, tended to be either Saturday and Sunday at the end of what should have been three weeks rehearsal, but it always got slightly truncated. And all the film stuff was done before we started actually work in White City. So when you're in the, you know, the, the studio sequences yeah. that, uh, that we see, that's you, in a way, getting to grips with all of this on the day, as it were. You didn't have any chance to, to experience what it was like to be inside of the... Well, you uh, did, because we had the fittings and things like that, and you walk around. But it's really interesting that um, before you actually have to act in them, you're saying to yourself, God, I can't walk in this, and I can't breathe, and I'll never get through a door, and how do I sit down? And then, of course, when you actually have to do it, you forget all about that. You're thinking about other things. What do you remember about the reception of Elizabeth? Oh, how it was received. 
Do you know, I don't remember anything about it at all, really, um, apart from, well, because I was working and so those kinds of things didn't happen, except because it was the BBC. All my American friends think that all of us associated with Elizabeth R are multimillionaires because they, you know, they do very successful television series. And then you explain to them the relationship between public service broadcasters and uh, that the BBC didn't sell it and there was no money coming. I mean, I remember I once got a cheque from Nigeria for nine pence. Um, <laughs> but um, I, what I... Things I, I do find interesting that... One of the things that was interesting, probably a bit later on, was that people would write to me, curiously enough, quite a lot of teachers saying that the series had actually sparked an interest, not just in the Tudor period, as far as their pupils were concerned, but in a broader English history as well. And I think that's pretty good. What do you think it expressed about the culture of the BBC in this period? Because this is, this is BBC Two under David Attenborough isn't he? And he's coming. He's got rid of that silly kangaroo logo that it had when it <laughs> launched, and he's made it into the channel where you go to watch things like Civilization and Well, it was a like not a modernisation. I mean, well, it was in a sense. It was partly a modernisation of um, Reith's basic premise of why public service broadcasting is so important. And it was certainly presenting that dogma um, in a way that was contemporary, but never lost track. What am I trying to say here? It was never ever at that time lowering the standards. They never worked for the lowest common denominator. They took that Rethian philosophy very, very seriously and um, would that uh, we could have a bit more of that today. <laughs> I wonder whether one of the other things that it, that it does, and I think we can see that by looking at some of these pictures here, is that it's, it seems very important that this is a series in colour. You know, BBC Two is broadcasting in colour. Mm -hmm. you know, not, not everybody has a colour set, obviously, in, in 1971. Right. But on Saturday nights, Elizabeth R went out straight after Pot Black, which you, 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 needed, you needed... Well, you either needed a very good eye if you had a black-and-white television you were watching Pot Black in, right. in black and white. But it, it, seems, it seems to be something that, uh, that's experimenting with that. You know, it's, in, it's, uh, it's drama for an age, the age of colour. I wonder if that's true or whether they just thought they could try it out because there wouldn't be that huge an audience screaming in anguish <laughs> at not very bright colour. I don't think they did. I mean, I think it was just the, that sort of, let's try it and see. It, it was extremely successful. I think. I mean, I'm not sure what its original ratings were, but it was certainly it was repeated on BBC One um, mm -hmm. the following year, yeah. um, uh, and you know, it had been lavished with awards uh, by that point. I mean, you said you don't remember anything about the reception of it, but do you not uh, recall its uh, its success in America? Well, not really. I mean, because I was over here, and uh, you know, as I say, it was it was shown on their equivalent of public service broadcasting, but certainly when physically one went there or, you know, bumped into people, they would say what a hugely successful series it was. But, you know, it's a very, very long time ago and the kind of cult 
of interest residing only in success or popularity was not running at that time. I mean, it simply wasn't that great kind of, yeah, it was that, you know, in a funny kind of way, you were expected to be able to do it, otherwise you wouldn't have been there. Do you know what I mean? So did it not change your life or change you professionally? Well, it changed me way? physically because I had my head shaved. Mm. And I know that caused a row between Ken Russell and John Schlesinger because I was going to do a film <laughs> for one of the other. Um, but no, no, I don't think so. No, I mean, the great thing about, as I say, there was not this obsession at that time with either personality or success in that way. And the great thing about this country, which I've always found, is you can do your work and go home. People don't feel the need to sort of rush up and want your autograph mm. or, as it is now, take a selfie. Um, no. <laughs> People couldn't take selfies then, that's the point. <laughs> and what do you remember about it? Watching that, that um, watching the lion's cub, it struck me that we see you doing it. We see you on horseback. We see you doing Indeed. that fancy calligraphy. Yeah, we see you playing the harpsichord. Is that well, you I think playing that's the harpsichord? A big sheet. That's somebody else? I don't think you see my hands <laughs> after the opening shot. Um, but certainly, no, you see this, again, go back to the beam, it's one of its golden days. I was taught by a calligrapher how to write her actual signature. I was given lessons on how to ride a horse side saddle. They gave me archery lessons because I had to loose off arrows at some point. I'm trying to think what else they actually organised for me, which is quite staggering, actually. Um, the horses, well, yeah, I mean, if you can sit on a horse that is regularly used, either on film, on television, they go the minute the director says action, so you, <laughs> you don't have to worry about anything. They, you know, they go when he says action and they stop when they say cut, so that's okay. As long as you're holding on, you don't go over their head. You know, that kind of thing. Mm. How much did Elizabeth sort of occupy you in this period? Because this is quite a lot of your... You know, this is a big undertaking, isn't it? These, these six oh, yeah, I mean, it was seven films. months' work, I think, in total. Um, uh, but then, as I say, I was very lucky. I, was, I had other things that I went on to afterwards. And, I mean, I, I come from a family where you're not allowed to get above yourself mm. in any way, shape or form. I mean, if Elizabeth... I'd walked through my front door, I'd soon have known I'd gone to the wrong house, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But you played her on the big screen, again, pretty soon afterwards, didn't you, in, uh, in Mary Queen of Scots? Well, I played Hollywood's version of her, which isn't quite the same thing. How I mean, would you compare those two experiences? Oh, I wouldn't. I mean, <laughs> no, I, I don't mean that flippantly. I mean, I did it because essentially I wanted to work with Vanessa. I mean, I'd never had the opportunity to work with her. Um, but the kind of detail that, that it was possible in a series like that simply was not possible in that film. And the, the focus was entirely different. It was a complete romanticization. Um, whereas I think some of the realities of Tudor England still come through that. I mean, the, the sort of casual way people say, oh, was he burned? You know what I mean? It's pretty horrific, isn't it? You know. What did it, uh, did it teach you anything about the nature of power? It's very difficult to, be, to really be able to equate that if one is looking at it in a kind of contemporary way. The one thing about power then was that it was absolute only if you had the wherewithal, if push came to shove, to actually burn people or go to war with people. And one, I, one of the things I found interesting 
about her and her time was she was absolutely, no one could delude her about the value of money because money was what ensured that the exercise of power could be carried out. She never wanted to go the whole hog and actually have to fight another country. But those were the realities. I mean, somebody said to me the other day, because, you know, it's Shakespeare this year, isn't it? Um, 400th anniversary and stuff. And they said to me, you know, we want to talk about politics in Shakespeare. And I said, there aren't any politics in Shakespeare because there is no electorate, because the politics are exclusively about who has power and how can they hang on to it. And I think it's interesting, simply on the surface of this, the way um, they don't go into it, you know, massively like a, a professor or something, but the way to shore up that power over periods of time, certainly in a country like this where the sovereign is supreme, is how they write this kind of, over the years, the new rule book, you know, which has to do with whose child was this and what is the succession? Because they'd had an awful lot in the early ones with everybody, I mean, who'd jump up and say, actually, it's mine. And, and I found it in interesting the way, and we're still doing it up to a point, I think, um, simply constantly writing the rule book of what does absolutely underline the power of the person who has it at the time. There's no electorate, but there is uh, there's that factionalism, there's that jockeying for Yeah, but position. it's all in there's... a very small space. I mean, it's all around wherever the sovereign happens to be. Actually, that's a broad generality because, you know, the, the, the regions of the country, quite apart from the separate countries within the country, have their own power people. And that's where, you know, revolutions and all that kind of thing comes out. But nonetheless, that's what it was about, essentially power, the hanging on to it and the exercising of it. And exercising of it so you did not completely disaffect what we would now call an electorate, but at that time was called the people. The Palace of Westminster is quite a small place as well, though, isn't it? I'm just wondering about whether or not the, the processes and the mechanisms of power that we see depicted in a story like this you know, ring true in that parliamentary context where you've observed them. I know there was no Granita deal between Mary and Elizabeth, well, not, was there? But... No, it, but it, it, in no way is it similar in truth. Um, because, A, the actual bit that we, as the electorate, see of, of Parliament, which tends to be oh, PMQs, or if this is a, a debate people are particularly interested, they might tune in, um, because now you can see and hear live what is happening in that chamber. That's a comparatively recent change. I mean, we take it for granted, but it's comparatively recent. And let's remember how long it took to actually allow women to have the vote. I mean, it's not 100 years yet. And up until that point, the, the electorate had been sort of chopped up into rotten boroughs. So there's, you know, it's, it's taken an awfully long time for the electorate actually to be given the importance that it deserves. Um, and what is shameful is that electorate so often doesn't think it needs to exercise that vote that everybody fought so hard for them to get. But the exercise of power on a decision-making level, which was absolute in her day, is not absolute. You know, the prime minister can't do it like that. I mean, and we all know the queen doesn't. The queen does as she's told. So that 
yes or no thing, it takes much, much longer this time. I mean, in our time, as it should. And whereas in her time, foreign nations were automatically regarded as enemies, we are moving, one would hope, faster and faster towards a period where we look at foreign nations as, as allies in not just in that kind of surface sense, because that means that we're as a little group opposed to that group, but where that actually does have to take on that real dimension of discussing, considering, acknowledging that what we do here may affect somebody over there, and if they're affected, that might. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's infinitely more complex, I think. More complex, but there's nothing at all that these two worlds have in common, then? Not as far as I'm concerned, no. No, none whatsoever. I think that the best news in the arts that I've heard this year is the fact that you're coming back to the theatre. Well, that's very kind of you. Oh, my God, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's why very did you, kind. Why, why did you want to do it? I mean, you probably knew that we wanted it, but why did you want it? Do you know, it? I didn't. I mean, I'd always shot my mouth off saying, oh, no, the minute you're out of this business, you've forgotten, nobody remembers, nobody wants to know, things move forward. So I've actually been very touched by the way people have actually said, oh, you know, people have stopped me in the street and said, oh, I'm glad you're coming back. So that's very nice. Or, though I'm a bit hesitant about the back aspect of it, but you know what I mean. Um, well, it's King Lear isn't it? Another regal part, a, a part that I suppose in a way is yes. the opposite of what we see here, a part about somebody who relinquishes power rather than takes it on. Well, I, I wouldn't go that far, but um, <laughs> no, I... Well, why, I first, why King Lear then? The idea was first put up to me by my friend Nuria Esper, um, who has played it in Spain. I went over to see her in Barcelona and she said to me, why don't you do it? And I said, don't be ridiculous, I couldn't do it. And then somebody else said to me, and then the Vic said, what would I like to do? And I thought, well, yeah, why not? I mean, not because it's, uh, my interest is not the gender shift. I'm not interested in a woman playing a man's part or, it's the age aspect of it that interests me because the older you get, I think, both as an individual and having observed it over the years, the lines between masculine and feminine begin to blur. I mean, we've all got both in us, I mean, that, that kind of thing. And I just think that's interesting. I think that's, that's something that Leah, certainly as a play, gives the opportunity to explore that and what that produces in the individual um, who may not uh, up front think, oh, I'm, I'm being a bit girly like this, which is not what I mean, but it is that that interests me, that the older one gets, the thing about age, the, the, the definition of gender becomes more and more blurred. And of course, we're all living longer, and want to go back to the political thing again, the big black hole this country is facing, all Western countries are facing, is how do we actually pay to care for us when we get very old and can't care for ourselves? And so that's got repercussions for now as well. But then every, every generation almost imposes upon Shakespeare, I think, what they think he's about, do you know what I mean? And he always rises to the occasion, doesn't he? <laughs>
Who's the, who are the great Lears that you've seen? I've only seen one, actually, and that was Paul Schofield, and I was privileged to see him do it on the stage. I've never seen him do it in the film. I've never seen the film. And I caught the tail end, I can't think why, but anyway, it was the tail end of Olivier's television, mm. but I didn't see the whole thing, no. I think it might be time to throw this out to the audience. So if you have a question, do stick your hand up. You were quite alarmed when, the, when you were asked, you know, you're coming back, and you thought, back, back. But I want to know why you left us in the first place. Anything politics. I could have done that was legal, that would have got rid of Margaret Thatcher, <laughs> I was prepared to do. Anything, anything. Can I ask what, what do you, I, this may be a slightly personal question, but when you heard that she died, what, what, how did you respond? You mean to the actual mm, yeah. death? Yeah. Um, well, I, I would lie if I said that I grieved because she was not a personal... My, my attitude to her was as a prime minister, not either as a woman or, you know, or a granny or a wife or a mum, but as a prime minister. And it was her policies that I was so... which I so loathed and which we're still reaping the whirlwind of even today. And also, she had been out of the political calendar for a very, very long time. And, you know, we'd all heard that she was frail and growing old. It wasn't as though, I, I mean, I can't say that, you know, it, no, it didn't make any, it was a fact, it was a fact. But then when it came to the day in parliament when tributes were being paid, I'd sat there and listened to the other side of the house rewrite as I saw it history and I couldn't take it any longer. <laughs> Let's have another question. Hello. Um, I just say thank you very much because I thought that was wonderful. I thought it stood up so beautifully mm. and I wasn't expecting it to stand up so beautifully in terms of the, the uh, camera work, etc. One thing I wondered about the psychology of, of really Elizabeth. I mean, she was a second uh, female monarch in, this, in, our, in, in our history and that must have made a huge difference to the way she reacted and, and the nature of her preservation and I just wondered if that played at all in the beautiful script that John Hale gave us in the way that you thought about playing it. The thing that I could never latch into which I think was absolutely central to her and I don't think I ever would able, be ever really to be able to latch into it and use it in a sense was her faith. She really believed God had chosen her, that he had actually protected her all the way through. And I can say it, and I can acknowledge that that for her is, well, it's ridiculous to say reasonable, but I can't dig more out of it than that. And, and yet I think that is what was essentially the most sustaining part, apart from the fact that she was, you know, really brilliant. I mean, she'd got a fantastic brain, a, a fantastic brain. But as I said earlier, I think one of the interesting things was that how in this country and other countries as well, um, certainly if we're looking at sovereigns and, you know, absolute monarchs in that way, way, the way the kind of rule book changes over the generations so that um, the rights of whomsoever is going to be next in line are more clearly defined. She was never in that position. 
I mean, once she was a princess, then she was a bastard, then she was a princess again, then she's a bastard again. So she never had that. But what she had very clearly was the view of what was the alternative. You know, it, I mean, I suppose in the most simplistic terms, it's either wearing a crown or not having a head to put a crown on. And, but over and above all that, and you, you know, you can't, we tend, well, I do, because it doesn't resonate with me, but I mean, the, Ref, the Reformation, which her father had brought in, was so extraordinary for, for that country, it, it, for our country in that sense. Um, so I, I, I go back to the point, I mean, for her, the guy who was always out, was always on her side, was God. I think we've got time for a couple more. Yes, one on the end. I'm not, am I ignoring lots of people on this side? No, or are you just... no hands going no, up I'm there. I'm going to say this because I think it's so good and so wonderful that you appreciate the costume designer and the makeup because so often, even on really shows which have tremendous amount of period costume and design and makeup, they're hardly mentioned. I mean, we're often the Cinderella. I'm a costume designer. Um, but I think, too, I must say that the costumes have not dated, by which I mean that it's very difficult to escape the period in which you design in. So often you see a 20s film mm, about mm. Elizabeth and they look 20s. Mm. Or you'll see a, a, a 50s or 30s. And it's so fresh. It hasn't dated at all, the whole production. Mm. I thought it was just fantastic. Good. And I just wanted to say Well, I'm only sorry there aren't more of the, the kind of technical side of it as we tend to break everything up, you know, because everybody's on that, really, as I say, apart from the man at the gate at White City who never let you take your car in. I mean, it was. It was almost as though we were a kind of little rep company that the BBC hierarchy knew nothing at all about. And, and that, that, you know, the same actors very often the same uh, technicians, I mean, even Cameron and Sam in that, and obviously the people who were responsible for the clothes and the makeup and everything. It was just an amazing experience. And, and, and people really did, I mean, did feel it was theirs. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't hierarchically broken up inside and we were all working on the same thing. We've got one down here. Hello. Um, when you're playing Leah, I'm kind of interested in the shift of the relationship of a mother with three daughters and the father with, with three daughters. It's a, such a different leap, isn't it? The mother-daughter relationship and a father-daughter relationship. We've got very different areas here. How are you going to tackle that? Because mothers and daughters often are much closer sometimes than fathers and daughters. Oh, I, I don't think that's Well, maybe. True. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think that's true at all. Oh, right. Okay. No, I don't know. We haven't had the first reading yet, so I can't answer your question. I mean, those are things that one will have to explore as yeah. one does it. I mean, you know, it is a play with... I can't... There isn't a bad part in that play. I mean, they're wonderful, wonderful parts. And it is, I think, a wonderful play, and I hope we Indeed. discover it, because um, I think certainly looking at it from an exclusively performer's point of view, Shakespeare is very often a terrible, terrible burden mm. because, you know, he's stuck there in front of you and you either get over that gate or you climb that mountain or you don't count if your Hamlet is marvellous. You, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. And 
it's almost as though people have forgotten that he wrote them not to be parsed, not to have books written about them, not to be dissected. How many times does the word and appear in this? He wrote them to be played. He wrote them Indeed. to be acted on a stage. And it'll be interesting to see if we can do it. Yes. Well, I'll be in the audience. <laughs> well, come round and let me know. I think we've got time for one more. Did I see a hand go up on the, on the front row there? Yes. Oh, it's interesting, because I worked on the very first one as a makeup artist, as an assistant. And, and to see it now is extraordinary, because um, not to, I'm not a makeup artist anymore. One wonders, if you don't know much about history, why she didn't ever marry. But having seen all the corruption and the things that happened around her, it really th was really blatantly there. Did you find that? Did, mm. Was that a discovery when you did that, Glinda? Mm. It's extraordinary, isn't it, really, how... The, the kind of weakness of man and the power trip, and that she, no wonder she never, ever trusted anyone. Well, I wouldn't go so far as to say she never trusted anyone. Well, she I certainly mean, trusted Cecil, and yeah. she's trusted other people, but mm. where she would never, ever go over that line was to get married. Mm. And I don't think that was necessarily because she was anti-men or anything to do mm. with that. It was a death sentence. Everybody she'd known had their heads chopped off. You know, yeah, it's extraordinary. It's so well portrayed. It's so exciting. Can't we see the whole thing? <laughs> it's all on DVD. Oh, so is it? Yes. Mm. yes. I'll save up for Is the answer to that. Get into it somewhere. I'm afraid we have to end it there. So oh, well. what I have to say and what everybody else has to say here, I think is thank you very much, Glenda Jackson, and long may you reign over us. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this BAFTA Heritage Podcast. To hear more from this series, you can subscribe using a podcast app or go to bafta.org forward slash heritage. Mm -hmm.